This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Wednesday. Daphna, holding strong? Yeah, we're getting there. Mm-hmm. We are doing maternal fetal medicine. So we're going to start with question 27. This is a question for you. Um, a pregnant person with a twin uh, pregnancy presents at 29 weeks gestation with an acute increase in abdominal girth. Uh, fetal ultrasonography reveals high drops in one twin and a twin-to-twin transfusion is suspected. Which twin is most likely to develop high drops associated with a twin-to-twin transfusion? Okay. Um, so we talked about twin-to-twin transfusion, I think it was yesterday. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, that's that's not a very difficult question because it should make sense uh, mechanically speaking. Um, if we understand that having high drops means that you have an accumulation of fluid in various compartments, uh, it would make sense that the baby that's at risk of suffering from high drops is the baby that's receiving more of that fluid. So that should be the recipient twin. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I picked B, recipient twin. Perfect. Perfect. And you know, if you pick, you, it it either, one of these things has to be wrong, like, right? When you're looking at your, um, your options there. So anyways, um, a pregnant person with twin to twin transfusion may present with an acute increase in abdominal, uh, girth, um, obviously leading to discomfort can have uh, symptoms of respiratory distress or even preterm labor, um, given these fluid shifts. And so we talked a little bit about the difference between tops and taps. So oligopolyhydramnios sequences, when there's that difference in amniotic fluid volumes, and fetal hematocrits um, in these Modi twins. Um, it presents in about 5 to 15% of Modi twins, despite um, almost 85% of those uh, twin um, gestations having um, vascular connections. Just because they have vascular connections doesn't mean that they're going to have um, twin-twin transfusion, but it puts them at risk. And on ultrasound findings, um, obviously they have a single placenta because that's where the um, anastomosis come through. You would see a size disparity between the fetuses and a size disparity between the amniotic sacs. Um, And you may even see a size difference in the umbilical cords. And then if there's really a difference in hematocrits, you may actually see some changes in the MCA or the middle cerebral artery Dopplers, um, especially uh, you'd see increased, we see increased MCA Dopplers in anemic uh, fetuses and decreased middle cerebral artery Dopplers in the polycythemic twin. So there is a difference, obviously, in how it affects the different uh, twins. The donor twin, so the one um, who's getting less fluid back, develops anemia. They can have hypovolemia, oligohydramnios, um, decreased urine output, and decreased growth. And if the oligo is um, very severe, obviously this impacts pulmonary development. And if it's so severe, the fetus may appear like stuck up against the uterine wall um, because the amnion actually begins to adhere to the fetus. Um, and actually, I think the extreme presentation of that, what do they call that? Fetal, fetal papyrus, right? 
if there's extreme um, presentation and, and basically loss of the second twin. Um, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Um, the recipient twin, just like you said, may develop polycythemia, hypervolemia, polyhydramnios, um, cardiac hypertrophy, and the extreme would be the development of hydrops. All right. Okay. Um, all right. My turn then. Mm-hmm. Daphna, question 31. You are asked by an obstetrician at your hospital to speak with a woman with phenylketonuria who is now pregnant at 16 weeks gestation. Which of the following statements is true for the fetus in this vignette? Choice A, fetal outcomes are significantly improved when low maternal phenylalanine concentrations are established before conception. Choice B, uh, if maternal treatment leads to normal phenylalanine level, fetal phenylalanine level will be normal. The current recommended phenylalanine concentration during pregnancy are more liberal than those currently recommended for PKU treatment during early childhood. Choice D, the embryologic effect of maternal PKU includes macrosomia and macrocephaly. Again, let me say that again. PKU includes macrosomia with an A and macrocephaly with an A, just so for the audience so that I'm not confusing them with the choices. Choice E, the risk of congenital abnormalities in the fetus is dependent on whether the fetus develops PKU. Oh man, that was tough to read. Go ahead. <laughs> Okay. We actually, in my training at the University of Florida, we had actually a lot of patients with, with PKU because it was um, at that time, um, a center for, for metabolic syndromes. Anyways, um, fetal outcomes significantly improved when low maternal phenylalanine concentrations are established before conception. That's true. And actually, I mean, that's really something for us to think about, about most of the, the disorders that affect pregnancy. If we can get um, maternal diseases under control prior to conception, um, in general, the outcomes are better. So let's see. B. Um, B seems like a right answer. If maternal treatment leads to normal phenylalanine levels, fetal phenylalanine levels will be normal. But this is one of those placental transfer questions where I think it's the the fetal concentrations are actually like multiplied, magnified compared to the, the, um, pregnant person. So B is, um, wrong. Let's see. Um, current recommended phenylalanine concentration during pregnancy are more liberal. Um, I think for that same reason that that would be incorrect. Um, actually babies, uh, born to moms with PKU tend to be small. And then let's see. Uh, no, I mean, can, you know, the development of PKU is, is, I mean, related, but separate from a parental PKU. Mm-hmm. So A. A. All right. So um, yeah, A is the correct statement. So PKU is a congenital uh, disorder that's inherited in an autosomal recessive fashion, right? And basically you have um, an, an accumulation of phenylalanine because you're missing the enzymes that's supposed to convert phenylalanine to tyrosine. And eventually tyrosine uh, can develop into dopamine, right? If it goes through the tyrosine hydroxylase uh, pathway. Um, so this accumulation of phenylalanine and phenylalanine metabolites are the reason for symptoms. Um, what are the complications of having PKU? Um, you can have intellectual disability, seizures, microcephaly, and poor growth. Um, 
the newborn screening of this disease was established in the 1960s and is helping us with early detection. It's one of the reasons why many establishments in many hospitals and many nurses who are drawing these newborn screenings are still calling it the quote-unquote PKU. Um, and that's because it used to just test for phenylketonuria. So like you said, it's very important to differentiate what they're asking you here, right? There's a difference between what would a baby present with PKU versus what would be the fetal effect of a mother who has PKU who's not really controlling, controlling her levels of uh, phenylalanine correctly during the pregnancy. Um, so these are two different things and, and they should not be confounded. So the embryological effect of maternal PKU include growth restriction, intellectual disability, microcephaly, and cardiac malformation. The risk of congenital anomalies is dependent on the maternal blood phenylalanine concentration and is independent of the fetal genotype, right? And that's the key um, because you can talk about a baby that has uh, PKU and who has the who has the who's homozygous for the mutation, and that's a different discussion. During pregnancy, phenylalanine crosses the placenta by active transport, resulting in a significantly higher fetal concentration of phenylalanine compared to maternal concentration. Um, the current recommended phenylalanine concentration during pregnancy are consistent with current recommended levels for PKU treatment during early childhood, and uh, fetal outcomes have been shown to be significantly improved when low maternal phenylalanine concentrations are established with treatment preconception or by 8 to 10 weeks gestation uh, at the latest. Um, is there... Um, yeah, so I don't want to go... I was thinking of going into... PKU itself, but I don't want to go into that because that's the whole point of this question is asking you the effects of mm -hmm. um, increased metabolite levels in the mother on the baby. Um, so, so yeah, so that's the yeah, and I think we'll get there in the genetic in metabolism agreed, section. Agreed. Okay. 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 Question thirty-four: Which of the following compounds does not cross the placenta? Is it A. Bilirubin, B. Coumadin, C. Iodide, D. Uh, TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone, or uh, ETRH. Okay, so um, this is very high yield, <laughs> mm -hmm. and there's a few items there where um, that that we should know cross the placenta, and some of them that are notorious for not crossing the placenta. Um, I know you'll go into uh, you'll explain to us each one separately, but I remember that TSH uh, does not cross the placenta. Yeah, that's correct. So um, unconjugated bilirubin crosses the placenta. Um, Protein-bound conjugated bilirubin cannot cross, but um, some bilirubin, like we said, the unconjugated or indirect forms can cross. Um, Coumadin does also cross via simple diffusion, um, like many medications, um, and both TRH and iodine are actively transported across the placenta, but TSH um, does not cross the placenta. And so this question is particularly high yield, but in particular, they love to ask about the thyroid hormones, I feel like. I've seen lots of questions related to that. So let's review. Iodide crosses um, the placenta. TRH crosses the placenta. Um, and TSH does not cross the placenta. There are six primary ways that substances can cross the placenta and enter the fetal circulation. Um, so this gets asked a, a lot also. 
Um, simple diffusion is passive. Uh, it's energy neutral, so it doesn't require ATP. That allows compounds to flow across a concentration gradient from high to low concentration. And um, these are molecules that frequently undergo simple diffusion. So um, oxygen, CO2, water, and then remember this, that um, lipids and fat-soluble vitamins, which makes sense, the, uh, the, the, the fat components um, cross the placenta via simple diffusion. Facilitated diffusion is mediated by a carrier moving a compound along the concentration gradient, but without the input of energy. And this is, um, I think, really high yield. So glucose um, is like the number one thing that moves across by facilitated diffusion. Mm -hmm. I don't know if, if you know Spanish at all. I can just remember that glucose, facil, goes across um, by facilitated diffusion. Um, the slightly Wait, why, why is that? Uh... <laughs> facile, facile means easy. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so it's not. I, I feel like um, glucose is an easy form of energy for the body. Oh, I so see. Okay, okay. I remember okay. facile. Um, Fine. Facilitated glucose. I thought you were. Uh, yeah, because for a second I was like, that's not how we say glucose in. <laughs> oh no, you're right. <laughs> that's just what I remember. <laughs> Sorry. Fine. That makes sense. And then active transport, so some of those bigger compounds require energy um, to move against the concentration gradient. I think the number one remembers that amino acids, amino acids move by active transports. I like mm. it when letters yeah. come together. But also some of the other bigger um, electrolytes, calcium, phos, magnesium, um, and then iron and iodide move via active transport. Then as we move up the scale, immunoglobulins, so much bigger molecules, um, are uh, needed uh, to move by penocytosis. So they're engulfed and they're packaged for transport across the placenta, the immunoglobulins, except for IgM, which does not cross the placenta. And then the, um, there's this bulk flow, um, which allows large quantities of substances to transit the placenta by hydrostatic or osmotic forces. And finally, the last mode of transport is breaks in the fetal placental interface, which allows cells to cross um, from one side to the other. So um, other things that do not cross are biliverdin, not bilirubin, but biliverdin. Mm -hmm. um, heparin does not cross, um, and it's, it's why it's frequently used in pregnancy, um, glucagon, insulin, growth hormone, and IgM, like I said, do not cross the placenta. Yeah, I think it's very important to highlight what you just said. Insulin does not cross the placenta, mm -hmm. and TSH does not cross the placenta. Um, so we know that these uh, thyroid syndromes in neonates are caused sometimes by antibodies from the mother, but it's not the TSH that goes and stimulates the the baby's thyroid. So yeah, that was that was very helpful. Thank you, Daphna. And the the the, the glucose and facilitated diffusion, I feel like is is a question I've seen mm -hmm. hundreds of times, and I uh, yeah, I feel like this is something that will uh, easily can come up on the test. All right, Daphna. Um, question thirty six. We have time, right? right. Mm -hmm. Question 36. Which of the following series of maternal serum screening test results is the correct chemical signature for a fetus at a high risk for trisomy 21? 
And um, so you have, okay, I'm going to read them to you. It's not the most audio-friendly stuff, but that's okay. Choice A is high alpha-fetoprotein, high beta-HCG, low uh, unconjugated estriol, and high inhibin A. So high AFP, high HCG, low UE3, high inhibin A. Choice B, high alpha-fetoprotein, low HCG, low estriol, low inhibin A. Choice C, low alpha-fetoprotein, high HCG, low estriol, high inhibin A. Choice D, low alpha-fetoprotein, low beta-HCG, low estriol, and low inhibin A. Okay, well, I mean, again, this is one I just think you just have to to remember. And when I think about trisomy 21 or Down syndrome, I remember that there are a number of things that are low um, in Down's syndrome, but then you have to remember which ones. So um, it makes sense to me that the beta HCG and the inhibin are normal or high because it it's a pregnancy. That's how I remember that. And then so I, I just know that the other two are low, the low AFP and the low UE3. So I think that is answer C. Yes, you are correct. So the so this refers to the quadruple screen, right? Which is a screening test that uh, is performed on maternal serum between 14 and 20 weeks of gestation. That I feel like is also a testable item. Um, and it has four components alpha fetoprotein, um, beta-HCG, unconjugated estriol, and is that how we pronounce estriol, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And inhibin A. So um, the constellation of low alpha fetoprotein, high beta-HCG, low estriol, and high inhibin A confers about a 75% risk of having a fetus with trisomy 21. A normal screen, a normal quadruple screen does not ensure a genotypically normal fetus. Uh, if you have a low uh, alpha fetoprotein, and instead of having a high beta HCG, you have a low beta HCG, and you also have a uh, low estriol and a normal inhibin A, this gives you a 60% chance of having a fetus with trisomy 18. The cry, the, that's, that's, so that's important. And then the other tidbit that's very important is that the quadruple screen is not helpful in detecting trisomy 13. Now, where this question may be getting a bit outdated is because I think as, mm -hmm. uh, as technology evolves, we now have uh, the cell-free fetal DNA that we can be tested from the maternal blood. And that actually is very, very reliable and can be done earlier than these quadruple screens as early as 11 weeks of gestation. Um, so I don't know if this is something that's going to be less tested. Now, why um, is it tricky and why uh, is there these timings that are so important? Because technically, um, you have to do um, these testings at the appropriate window because the alpha fetoprotein um, really is, is something that evolves during the pregnancy. And so the maternal alpha fetoprotein really starts increasing after... 13 weeks of gestation, while the fetal slash amniotic alpha fetoprotein decreases after 13 weeks of uh, gestation. So um, that's why the timing is very important, and uh, and it's best done around uh, those those 14 weeks. Uh, what else can I tell you? Um, there's obviously um, more things that have um, 
that came to light. Uh, nuchal translucency is another test that can be done. What is the nuchal translucency? It checks for the, the maximal space between the fetal skin and the, fe the fetal cervical vertebrae. Um, if it's more than three millimeters, it's considered abnormal. It can be done between 11 and 13 weeks. Uh, and it's when you combine this with the, the quadruple test, plus this additional test called the PAPPA test, then your detection of trisomies goes up to 95%. So um, the PAPPA is the pregnancy alpha plasma protein A that can also be tested. So um, again, statistically speaking, the more you tack on to these tests, the, the more uh, accurate the detection of trisomy 21 becomes. Um, so yeah, the trisomy 18, trisomy 21, and to summarize, they both, um, they both have low uh, alpha fetoprotein, a high beta HCG points to uh, trisomy 21 with a low S trial and a high inhibin A. And in trisomy 18, you, you have a low AFP and you have a low beta HCG and you have a low S trial, but a normal inhibin A. When in trisomy 21, it was a high inhibin A and a high beta HCG. All right. I hope I didn't confuse anybody, but uh, did the best I could there. <laughs> yeah, I... I remember that a lot of things are low in Down syndrome, but you have that high beta HCG and the high inhibin A. And then I remember that trisomy 18 is a lower number than trisomy 21. Okay. So it has even more low things. The only thing um, that's not low is the, is the inhibin A, but it's it's not high. It's but it's not normal. high. It's normal. That's, that's right. a good That's a good way of remembering it. I like that. So in trisomy 18, ignore inhibin A and everything else is low. Right. Perfect. And if it's, and trisomy 13 is not, that's not what the quadruple test is for. So that's it. Mm -hmm. Left for trisomy mm -hmm. joint. Thank you, Daphna. Maybe you should have done the answer to this question. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think that's it. All right, Daphna. See you Thursday. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUpodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.